Welcome to Lost in the Movies. This episode concludes the Ethan Hawke series that I've been doing for the second half of this year. When I kicked off my podcast in July, it began with Before Sunrise. I carried on through Before Sunset, Before Midnight, Boyhood, Gattaca, Dead Poet Society, Training Day, and now First Reformed, which is my favorite of these films and also the most recent. It's Paul Schrader's, uh, actually don't know if it's his most recent movie because it is from a few years ago. But it's the most recent one that I've seen, and I was blown away by it. I did buy it on Blu-ray. I still haven't watched it yet. It's one of those films where it's like the first impression is so strong, you almost want to wait a little before you start to revisit and build upon that. Uh, Twin Peaks Firewalk with me was like that for me as well. So these are just first impressions, a little bit stream of consciousness, but talking about what I liked about this movie. And then afterwards, I have a couple pieces of feedback, one pretty quick, but another one that is a little more in-depth fleshing out some of the movie's thoughts on Catholicism and Protestantism in ways I found really compelling. As far as my work elsewhere, there really isn't anything to update on this uh, this week. I've mostly been working on my Mark Frost video for Journey Through Twin Peaks about one of the co-creators of the show. And when that comes out, I will let everyone know on this podcast and elsewhere. So without further ado, let's dig into First Reformed. Reverend Toller? Yes, Mary. You must come over. She was becoming someone I didn't know. Opportunistic diseases, anarchy, martial law. You will live to see this. She had no idea that he was thinking of. No, I'm so frightened. These kids, they want certainty. You know, don't think, follow. They fall prey to extremism. It's a world without hope. No, I have not lost my faith. What we did together was a sin. I've seen enough real sin to know the difference. You didn't tell the police, right? Take a look at your own life before you criticize others. These are frightening times. We have to be patient. Well, somebody has to do something. I loved this movie. Uh, This will probably be a preliminary take for me because I plan on talking about it again in various mediums. I'd maybe love to make a video essay on someday, but certainly I think I'll write a review after a rewatch and hopefully tackle it from maybe a theological perspective, like read a little bit about the perspectives informing it, the different traditions, because I'm kind of fascinated by that aspect of the film. I want to read a lot more of of other people's takes. Right now, though, what I want to do is I want to share a unique thing that I'll only really be able to share once, which is my first impression based on memory of it, because it was a few months ago that I watched this, but it's really stuck with me. I've been wanting to conclude the Ethan Hawke series with this. In fact, the part of the reason that I'm doing the Ethan Hawke series is because I was watching the before films anyways, and then I saw this as well, and I was like, well, i got to discuss this film. So I've been building up to it ever since. One of my first impressions of this movie, just right from, maybe even from the trailer, but certainly from the first few minutes, was that it seemed like a fusion of Winter Light by Ingmar Bergman and Diary of a Country Priest by Robert Bresson, who are obviously two filmmakers that Paul Schrader has paid a lot of attention to, particularly Robert Bresson. He wrote a whole book about him, uh, Yasujiro Ozu, and uh, also um, Carl Theodore Dreyer as transcendental filmmakers. So that's in his DNA as, as a filmmaker. Diary of a Country Priest is the story of a Catholic priest in the French countryside and his torment of the soul and his spiritual agony and his isolation obviously plays out big in this. But and Winter Light is about a uh, Protestant pastor in Sweden 
who feels a loss of faith and uh, his own spiritual crisis, and it involves more his parishioners. He has, in particular, a husband and wife who come to him, and the wife is concerned for her husband, who's very depressed because of the world situation. He shares with him his anxiety. In that case of that movie, it's the fact of the uh, Chinese having an atom bomb and the U.S. having an atom bomb in this Cold War situation where it seems like nuclear holocaust could take place at any moment. And in this film, uh, First Reformed, the almost the exact same situation happens, but the young man is concerned with an environmental crisis. I wouldn't call it a remake, but is this like a conscious uh, fusion of these films? And really, it has other things going on in it, so it's pretty distinct. It can definitely stand alongside those movies. This is a masterpiece, in my opinion. I am so glad that I saw it, and I saw it in kind of an unusual way. This wasn't something that I was seeing on film Twitter and knew this is something I should go see, even though I don't see that many movies anymore, unfortunately. But actually, I was visiting my aunt, and she was like, oh, you got to see this crazy movie about a priest. It's got Ethan Hawke. And I was like, oh, all right, maybe, you know, I'll... I'll, I'll check it out. I don't know if I'm in the mood for that or whatever. And she put on the preview and I was like, whoa, this looks really good. And then, of course, it said film by Paul Schrader. And I was like, oh, OK, that makes sense. I've only really seen a few of Paul Schrader's films. I've seen uh, Mishima, his film about the Japanese novelist and uh, and film director who ended up staging a coup, a right wing coup in Japan and then killing himself. I've also seen his film uh, Affliction, the 19... 19- 97, 98 film with uh, Nick Nolte as an alcoholic small town cop uh, whose dad is an abusive father, oppressive father figure in his life, and he's trying to figure out if somebody was murdered in the woods. There's some political intrigue going on. It's just got this wintry New Hampshire location that's so evocative. I really love that movie. Of course, I've seen his quite a bit of his work as a screenwriter in the films that he wrote for Martin Scorsese. He contributed to Raging Bull, and most famously, Taxi Driver was his project. Like He's the one who conceived that. It was semi-autobiographical in a way, not fortunately too autobiographical. But the fact that when he wrote that film, he was living by himself. He hadn't spoken to anyone for weeks, and he realized he was just in this unhealthy state of mind, and out of that, a taxi driver was born. So Paul Schrader was born and raised a Calvinist. He was not allowed to ever see movies. In fact, he did not see his first movie till 18 or 19 years old. And then he became an avid cinephile, a film critic, a protege of Pauline Kael, and a film scholar. And then he ended up making films. So he's had a really interesting career. He's made a lot of other films too. He made American Gigolo. He made Blue Collar. He's got a very distinct voice Taxi Driver seems like a very Scorsese film, but when you see a lot of Schrader's work, it also really seems like a very Paul Schrader film. He's attracted to those kinds of protagonists. He portrays them. He goes fully into their mindset, and he doesn't romanticize them, but he's he really gives voice to their pathologies really well. And this film is definitely in that vein. So it's the story of a Protestant pastor named Reverend Toller, played by Ethan Hawke, And he is the pastor at this small, old, historical church that hardly anybody goes to. It's pretty much a museum piece. And he lives above it in the abbey. It's almost tempting to use a lot of Catholic terminology for the situation because he seems like a classic Catholic priest, that Robert Bresson character. But in other ways, he is very distinctly Calvinist and Protestant. And I was fascinated by that because I grew up Catholic and I'm much more familiar with that uh, trad- religious tradition. So seeing this tension within the Protestant world was really interesting. So despite him living in this idiosyncratic, almost out of time and place 
uh, location, he's under the aegis of this larger megachurch, which is very much more in the image of Protestantism today. And uh, that is run by a character named Jeffers, who's played by Cedric the Entertainer. And it's just a wonderful combination of performances and characters and really different worlds inhabited by these characters, Toller and Jeffers. And I love the dynamic between them. It was so good. Brilliant casting on Paul Schrader's part. And uh, Cedric the Entertainer is great in this. So you see him sometimes go to the city. It's in upstate New York somewhere. I'm not sure if it's Albany or Buffalo. I think it might be Buffalo. But uh, it's a location I feel like we don't see on film that often. Of course, we see New York City all the time, but we don't really experience upstate New York the same way. So I love the fact that this captured that distinct location really with the same sort of verve that Affliction captured uh, that wintry New Hampshire countryside that I, I loved seeing on screen so much. Now, the character, as I mentioned, is visited by a young man and his wife. In this case, Michael, played by Philip Edinger, and Mary, played by Amanda Seyfried. And in this case, as I said, he's really concerned with the global warming, climate change, the fact that his wife is pregnant, very pregnant. She's throughout this whole film, clearly really not not far from giving birth. And he's horrified by the thought of bringing a child into this world because he really believes within 30 or 40 years, you know, with good reason, given a lot of the science and a lot of the inaction that's taking place around this, that it's the, the planet is doomed and civilization is going to descend very rapidly into just a, a terrible state. And this is the world that he's leaving to his son. Uh, I believe they say it's a son, um, that his child upcoming and he's kind of horrified by it. And, Reverend Toller doesn't seem to have much to say. And then later Mary shows him something of Michael's. And I'll get into a little bit more spoilery stuff later. I want to pique your interest. That gives him a sort of a whole other perspective on Michael's troubles and what may happen there. So as the film goes along, Reverend Toller ends up taking on a lot of Michael's views and his thoughts about the world. And it just keeps getting darker and darker. He's got some kind of cancer that's eating away at him. He's coughing up blood all the time and he's drinking like uh, straight vodka, I think, up up in his room and descending deeper and deeper very much into this Travis Bickle, uh, Mishima type of frame of mind. There's also a woman named Esther who he sees when he goes into the city to visit the big mega church. They had an affair at some point in the past and he's really, she's she's still kind of enamored of him and she tries to reach out to him and he really spurns her in almost shocking ways at times. The things he says to her seem really vicious, but he just does not want anything to do with her and uh, is seems to be really ashamed of what happened between them or just horrified by the whole thing and her neediness for him. He used to be married. He had a son who died in a war in the Iraq war, I think, and uh, he supported it, and he feels now that he is, you know, responsible for his son's death, and this is really haunting him. It's something he speaks about with Michael and tries to reach out to him and let him know that he's experienced his traumas as well, and, and maybe he can counsel him through this. There's one other significant character named Balk, played by Michael Gaston, who is like a wealthy industrialist in the area who's funding the church, and he's helping to, they're going to reconsecrate the church that Reverend Toller is at for First Reformed, the title church, basically. 
he is going to show up for this event and Toller is horrified by him and everything he represents. He's a, obviously a major pollutant and a right-wing figure, I think, who opposes a lot of climate change activism that Michael and others are involved with. So this dynamic is brewing and there's this sense that we're moving towards a showdown as the church is going to be concentra- consecrated. And uh, so there's a, there's a, just a fascinating narrative going on there. There's just quite a few things that I loved about this movie. I was really compelled, as I said, by the religious tension within it between the... I don't even know if you could call it like a older tradition of Protestantism and something newer. It's almost really just two really philosophically different strains of religious practice that have kind of existed all along in Protestantism, I think, back as far as the break from the Catholic Church in some ways, this more celebratory in the world, moving away from kind of the seclusion of the Roman Catholic tradition. And then on the other hand, this actually more purist tradition that thought the Catholic Church was too worldly and you had to become even more remote and and, and remove yourself into isolation. Now, of course, that's a tricky thing to say because on the one hand, he is uh, really removing himself from a lot of human contact or, or being removed. Some of it is just things that happen to him. It's not necessarily the situation he put himself in, although he exacerbates it. But also, he in a way is is more worldly than some of the other characters because he's actually concerned with what's going on globally and this idea of Christian stewardship of the planet and that whole responsibility being revoked in the name of this really ugly, grasping materialism that he sees Uh, particularly represented by the industrialist, and that's a powerful juxtaposition. Now, of course, his way of dealing with this, though, is uh, ultimately feels like a nihilistic gesture in its own right, even if it comes from a place that's valiantly trying to fight nihilism. I don't know, in a way, if you can define this film as a radical film or a reactionary film. It's got elements of both in it, and Paul Schrader always does. He's a filmmaker who very much gets into this particularly white male, right-wing leaning kind of mentality of the vigilante, of the obsessive, puritanical personality. He's very influenced by The Searchers, the film with John Wayne, where he's trying to find his niece who's been uh, kidnapped by Indians and basically kill her because he thinks she's been defiled. He's aware of all of the horrors of this mentality, doesn't really flinch from showing that, but is also... It feels like identifies with it in some way, and it's just a very powerful experience watching watching these movies in that light where it's not at all, like I said, not a romanticized portrait of this kind of pathology, but it is definitely fully immersed in it. So I guess it's a point where I could talk about the ending of, of the film and even stuff that happens earlier. So Michael kills himself. Uh, and he just has filled with such despair. And what his wife had already showed Reverend Toller was that he'd created a suicide bomb that was hidden away in his garage, uh, a suicide bomb vest. And so Reverend Toller takes to wearing it almost like a hair shirt, you know, under his vestments. Well, actually, I think he wears it over his vestments in the end, but he, he has it there and he, he can't let go of it. And he's obsessed with this idea that maybe he's going to blow up the church when the industrialist and the the head reverend come to the church for the re-consecration. It's just this insane act that's not going to accomplish anything, but feels like some kind of futile gesture to defy this force. But he's also falling in love with Mary more and more as the as the scenes go by. And it's just this, this powerful chemistry between them. She comes into his church at one point, uh, well, rather to the room he's staying at the church, 
and there's this bizarre scene where she she lies on top of him and they spread their arms and legs out she says i used to do this with my husband she's lying there fully you know belly not almost nine months pregnant or whatever and they start to float above the ground and there's this weird effect where you're seeing they're superimposed over this vision of the forest and then it turns into trash and all of the horrors of the world and he has this look of agony on his face it's just such a bold bizarre move and it's only topped by the end of the film in which he starts flagellating himself he's uh got like i think he's mashing broken glass and tormenting himself because he's seen mary come to the church he told her not to come to this event and here she is and he doesn't want to blow her up too and he's furious and He's got blood dripping all over him, and she somehow finds her way. They've, they're singing this song, and it's got this rhythmic propulsion. It's just pure cinema. It's so good. And she bursts into the room, and he's standing there, and they race towards each other and just start making out right there. He's got blood all over him. I think he's still got the suicide vest on, and she's pregnant, embracing him. Her name's Mary. I mean, just come on. Like, you know, he's not afraid to be super obvious with this. And yet it's both an obvious allegory and, and a completely mystifying enigma as to what he's going for here. But it just, to me, it just feels right. And that's what I love about this movie most of all, is there are so many films out there that are interesting to discuss, that are flawed in some ways, that cover interesting topics. They have historical relevance and everything like that. At the end of the day, though, the films that I really love the most that kind of cut through all of that and just connect with me on a gut level there's something visceral about them it's an emotional experience that you almost can't explain but it just feels right like the form the style of it the presentation it just clicks the rhythm of it everything feels right and that's how this ending feels to me and i totally get people who are like not into it uh, somebody was saying to me on twitter they're like i really like that movie they hated the ending and that seems totally rational to me in a way but there's something irrational about the way it works it just it feels so right in that moment. I loved it because I was like laughing out loud, but also bowled over. It was emotionally powerful, but also ridiculous, utterly ridiculous. And knowing it's ridiculous, but not being like ironic or winking, just totally invested in the ridiculousness of the gesture and it, it feeling somehow right. Like we're just defying realism totally at this point and going for pure poetry. So yeah, I really love this movie. And sorry if I'm just sort of rambling about all the things I liked about it, but this was my, you know, th this was my takeaway from this film. Just this sort of overwhelming impression of why, like, wow, this is a fucking movie. I love this. This is like, it, it reminded me of the Jeff Simon, the uh, film critic from, I think, the Buffalo News. Not like a major nationally known film critic, I don't think, but he had the best take on Firewalk with me when it came out. One of the few great reviews, a rave review. And he wrote something that I think applies to First Reformed as well. It's one of those rare movies that make some people remember why they loved movies in the first place. Moving on to uh, some feedback I got from Andrew. He wrote, I listened to your remarks on First Reformed with interest. Even though your audience, myself included, craves the Twin Peaks sh there's something uniquely stimulating about hearing someone else's point of view. So I wouldn't have been able to make the following observations without listening to your thoughts on First Reformed. On the Catholic versus Calvinist thing, there's an interesting trend here. It seems Ethan Hawke's character is, quote, becoming more Catholic even before the drama begins. He cites Thomas Merton, a Catholic con contemplative mystic, as a guiding force. 
His journal is like an approximation of Catholic confession. The self-mortification is likewise a trademark of hardcore Catholicism. So it's like he's trying to get back to a primordial purity, even if he misunderstands what that would mean. On the suicide vest, I'm really glad you pointed out that Ethan Hawke's son died in Iraq. I'd forgotten about that, but it seems like it's crucial. By donning the suicide vest, Ethan Hawke is adopting the tactics of insurgency. This gesture may combine several trajectories. One, he's still trying to get back to old-time religion, but doing so imperfectly. Two, he's manifesting his belief that he is responsible for his son's death. Three, he's steeling himself to strike out against the political and economic system that likewise shares responsibility for his son's death. What Mike, hardcore Catholics, and the insurgents of the Middle East have in common is fervor. Ethan Hawke is trying to feel alive by whatever means necessary. While he longs for primordial purity, he grabs whatever is nearest to hand, hence the drinking and the adoption of Mike's ideology. His past affair with the choir master may also fit into this pattern. Mary offers something different, not primordial purity since she is too haunted by sudden loss, but a forward-facing purity that's animated by a recognition that life is precious. Mike correctly identified the problem, but then he wrongly concluded that life is not worth living. There's an interesting implication in all this. Mike, Ethan Hawke's son, and the insurgents of Iraq are imperfectly, quote, imitating Christ when they volunteer to kill and be killed. Mike took it one step further when he refused to kill others. Ethan Hawke, because he's imitating those who have fervor, takes it one step back. It's Mary who shows Ethan Hawke how to get it, go out now. In quotes, I like that. That's a little Twin Peaks reference there. First, she does this with the breathing exercise, then when she steps in to prevent killing. So she's basically Laura Palmer, of course, lol. Incidentally, I'm pretty sure she's pregnant with a daughter, because Mike asks Ethan Hawke how it would feel about raising a little girl in a time of worldwide catastrophe. 100% agree with your concluding remarks about First Reform just feels right. It's funny because I was so happy when Ethan Hawke and Mary embraced at the finale, even though it's completely inappropriate for so many reasons. I guess I feel about it the same way I feel about the ending of The Graduate. It's a happy ending because it needn't be a happily ever after ending. The point is to get out of the corrosive strictures imposed by society. What takes place afterwards is not yet written. Thanks for helping me love First Reformed even more than I did the first time round. Andrew. I responded, wow, love this. Can't wait to read it on the air. Glad I could help get that ball rolling. The contrast of Mary with the others is brilliant and reminds me of a sort of impression I had at the time that I wish I'd remembered to bring up in the review. It's like throughout much of the movie, Toller is moving toward a more Catholic vision of works, but Mary races in at the end to win him back to faith. Andrew says, whoa, in all seriousness, mind like blown right now. And then he quotes John 3, 3, 3, colon 3. <laughs> Jesus answered and said unto him, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Willie responded, and he said, catching up with the podcast after an extremely busy period at work, just popped in to thank you for nudging me into watching First Reformed. I'd been putting it off, but decided to check it out after your enthusiasm. What a f***ing movie. Brilliant ending. That's it for my thoughts and my listeners' thoughts for now on First Reformed. But of course, your feedback is always welcome. Please write in on old episodes, even if they're a few years old. I'd love to hear from you and engage with those thoughts uh, myself, if you know, I remember the film well enough to comment on it. In this case, I, I think that's definitely the case. So you can find my work on LostInTheMovies.com, all of my podcasts, public and patron, which is a huge, uh, you know, this as I always say, this is just the tip of the iceberg. So you have a huge backlog there. You can dig into 
plus 12 years of written reviews and video essays, which are my favorite form to work in. Enjoy your holiday vacation. I, if you have one, and if you don't, you know, your holiday vacation of the mind when you're able to steal a few moments. And this podcast probably won't be back until 2021. I'll probably wait uh, a month and just skip the every other week for uh, the last week of December. But I may put up a bonus episode with some loose ends, some maybe some capsules or something like that that I've recorded before. We'll see, but probably nothing until January. And at that point, for the first half of 2021, uh, this there won't be a theme. It will be all sorts of different reviews. And then I think every year for the second half, aside from all of my regular or semi-regular uh, sub-series like Twin Peaks Cinema or Left of the Movies, aside from those, uh, the first half will be random and the second half of the year, I'm probably going to have a theme like I did with this Ethan Hawke series. I enjoyed doing that. So we'll see you then. And if you enjoy this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe. And if you really enjoy it, please donate on Patreon for a dollar a month. See you in 2021.